This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Wednesday. And, uh... Happy, boy, Americans doing okay in the Olympics day. They're smoking them. Phelps, all cupped out. Big red spots all over his back. Count the spots. Do you yeah, remember I'm, that I'm book? glad they've explained what that is. Yeah. If not, you'd think that he's being... Zika. Zika. I was thinking Zika at first. Or he was attacked in the streets, because there's that's happening too to some people that are down there. Um, it's a crazy uh, day at the Olympics, though, but uh, Phelps takes... What two more gold medals? Yeah, he's up to twenty-one. He won. Uh, what was it? The two hundred meter butterfly by point four seconds or oh four <laughs> seconds. A Unbelievable! Incredible. He reminds me of myself back in the day. Back how? how? Way back in the day when I was taking swim lessons mm. at a local pool. It's mm. when I learned the butterfly. Okay, so how does that remind you of you? Just spots all over my back. He does it on a world-class level. You did it at your local pool. Right, but... And it probably looked like someone flailing around and the lifeguard was ready to save your life. Well, no, but at the very end of the summer, I jumped off the high dive. Okay. And He doesn't do that. No, it's pretty much graduation. So I graduated. It's like a gold medal. No? Yeah, uh. it's jumping... It's called jumping in the deep. Okay. Showed my grandma, jumped in the deep, grandma. Hmm. And then they had to pump water out of my system because I had a hard time. I didn't realize when you jump from that high, you go that deep. It takes a while to get back up to air. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I almost died. I can see how that has nothing to do with. Well, I wore a Speedo. Oh, okay. So we were pretty much twinners. (laughs) Twinners, we'll talk Olympics uh, in this first hour. Just, it's going to be tons of fun. Uh, there's so many stories out there. We could go everywhere from the green water, mm. which is totally weird. Yeah, it's like indoor green water. I know, but it went green in like a day. Did they pump it in from? They don't know what's outside? happening. Okay, I, you know, a lot of people are like trying to blame other other countries for is it, is it doing stuff in the pool. Is it a prank? No. Because in Chicago, they'll turn, you know, St. Patrick's yeah. Day, they turn the river green. It's not even a holiday. Okay. okay. It's just going, it's going green. I think the pool next to it is staying blue. Hmm. Something's going on in that in the high dive pool. It's just food coloring. It's fine. I don't think so. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, why they wear two um, caps, swim caps. Okay. That was big news. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. Wow. Slow uh, day, huh? U.S. soccer team advances, barely. Uh, New Zealand loses to Japan in rugby, seven on seven. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. How do you lose to Japan? They scored more points? That's exactly how you did. Yeah. Uh, gymnastics. Question. Yeah, they they're won a killing gold. it. Holy yeah. cow. Uh, Ledesky, is that it? Ledesky, um, she's doing great. Yeah. Man, we'll talk about all of that. Plus, we will be speaking with a PhD, Brooke McNamara, who... Um, who wrote an article about what it takes to become an Olympian. Is it the 10,000 hours? You just got to spend 10,000 hours doing something, you know, made famous by um, the rap singer. Macklemore? Macklemore. 
He's the only one you know, so. Well, and also, you know, there's a whole book written around um, 10,000 hours as well. Yeah. Is that a real, is that real? Is Does practice make perfect? We'll get to all of that. We'll find out. Or is there something more that has to happen if you really want to get to the Olympics? Plus, Jeff Simpson's joining us now, new on the board, replacing Benjamin Wasden. Jeffrey, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Good, Good to, have to be you. here. I mean, this is great. You're married, kids. Two kids, just one wife. Good. Very good. <laughs> Way to have control. And um, you, uh, what else do you, I know you do a lot of voice work. You do, you do a lot of, you know, you're, you're pretty hip on the scene. Yeah. And you're friends with all the guys at Studio C. Yeah. I, yeah. I joined uh, Divine Comedy with Matt Meese and Natalie Madsen. So you can, we're going to have you act out some scenes here. Okay. I mean, sometime. Okay. I'll tell you what to bring. Bring a toga for sure, because... We're going to be doing a drama. Right. And we use lots of togas. <laughs> We're big into togas here. We'll get to all of that. Welcome aboard, Jeffrey. And uh, let's get to the headlines, the headlines around the country. Who better to uh, help us with all of that than but, – oh, but first, hold on. Are we doing huh? – we, we've got a lot to talk about. There's tons to talk about. But you want to talk about the Olympics. So. Okay, we'll talk Olympics because I really can't handle Trump anymore. So let's do the headlines with Caitlin Thomas, and then we'll go around the horn. We'll be right back. Caitlin, what's up? Democrat Hillary Clinton leads Republican Donald Trump in three key battleground states after the conclusion of the political conventions, including Ohio, Iowa, and Pennsylvania, when the 2016 presidential race is expanded to four candidates, including Libertarian nominee Gary Johnson and the Green Party's Jill Stein, Clinton and Trump are tied at 35% each in Iowa, with Johnson at 12% and Stein at 6%. Donald Trump's comments Tuesday suggesting that Second Amendment people could stop Hillary Clinton from making judicial nominations sparked outrage from opponents by the campaign, but the campaign defended the remarks by arguing that Trump was referring to the group's considerable political power. Trump was accused by many in the Democratic Party of inciting violence against Clinton, but Trump's campaign denied that he was suggesting violence. Instead, he was referencing the power gun rights advocates have at the voting booth. Florida investigators are looking into how a civilian woman was fatally shot during a volunteer citizen police academy in Florida. As about 35 people looked on, an incident police are calling an unimaginable accident. Mary Knowlton, who was acting in a shoot-don't-shoot drill where participants simulate making lethal force decisions during roleplay, when she was struck by a live round, the police department said in a statement, Knowlton was transported to a hospital where she was pronounced dead. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement is investigating what went wrong. And finally, Matt, your favorite topic again. Michael Phelps won his 20th what? Olympic gold medal last night in the 200-meter butterfly just before Phelps. Katie Ledecky dug deeper than she ever had to win the women's 200-meter free. Then to close that night, the U.S. men with Phelps dropping the hammer on the anchor raced hmm. to gold in the 4x200-meter relay. The relay gold made 21 gold medals for Phelps, so that means Team USA is up to 10 gold, 8 silver, and nine bronze, totaling 27 medals so far, and we're in the lead. So go Team USA. Yes! Thanks, Caitlin. Crazy new 21 gold medals. Can yeah. you imagine what he's going to be like as a grandpa? Just all the stories. That Ooh. was a neat win, son. I remember when I won my 21st gold medal in the Olympics. Yeah. See? <laughs> a little Rio tunage for you. Ooh, a little, uh... Is this like the producers? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Rio's big time. A uh, lot of problems, though. Well, not, the, I, the water's turning green in so the dive pool. Yeah, the dive pool turned bright green Tuesday, baffling at least one competitor who said he, she could not see her partner underwater. Although organizers <laughs> said that it did not pose any health dam- health risks. You're fine. The mysterious shade of water, which contrasted sharply against the blue hue of wa- the water polo pool next to it, generated jokes about algae and dye on social media and overshadowed the women's 10-meter synchronized platform final, which uh. I don't know if could... There's a lot of things that could overshadow the 10-meter women's platform final. Really? That's I- not I'm your gonna favorite? Guess. I'm going to guess. Handball There's a lot of things sure. There. Yeah. Have you so, ever seen the uh, synchronized handball game? I have not. Fantastic. We'll see that coming up. Uh, we'll see. An Olympic fencer from France dropped a cell phone in the midst of competition after leaving it on in his pocket. Video shared by NBC Sports shows Enzo Lafort's phone falling out of his pocket as he <laughs> faced off against a competitor from Germany. Uh, he can be seen. Did he win? Uh, attempting to dodge his strike before stepping off the mat. As his cell phone flew out of his pants pocket, the match stopped as he reclaimed his phone and handed it off to someone else outside the playing That area. is embarrassing. Had his phone on him. Um, and a bus carrying journalists between Olympic venues was hit by gunfire Tuesday night. Um, a writer from a website called hoopsfeed.com said the two windows shattered and broken glass left two people with minor lacerations. Probably wow. on the face. A statement from Rio Organizing Committee said the incident took place after a media transport bus left the youth arena at 7.30 and wrote for Olympic Park, the organizing committee did not confirm whether rocks or gunfire were the cause of the broken windows. Holy cow. They said it was sounded like pop, 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 you know, gunfire. Well, it could have been popcorn. Could have been. So it's been, it, that's, it's just a busy day. So there's some, some things happening. From the green pool that they keep saying they don't know what it is. Could be algae. Uh, a lot of pool experts are saying, "Yeah, you need to you need to totally nuke that pool with some chlorine." Is there a chlorine effect with, say, athlete's foot? Uh, I don't know, and Ben's not here. Yeah, so and he's the expert on that. So we won't ever get to the bottom of that one. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what's a common denominator in that pool? Swimmers. Swimmers. Uh, lots of spandex or whatever polyester whatever their suits are made yeah, of whatever under armor decided to cook up <laughs> remember last olympics there was yeah. a problem because they're like the suits are making them too fast yeah these suits are like they, they were so they they're, were they were like fish suits yeah they're aerodynamic i mm. guess let the water stream by faster i'm liking the olympics that's good i think it's cool i mean michael phelps still in the game 21 medals I watched reruns of Cold. Night Court last night. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's kind of random, huh? That's a throwback. Yeah, that's what I did instead of the Olympics. I watched that uh, at my girlfriend's house in high school. Yeah. When there's nothing on, my wife and I are like, oh, here's here's hey, a rerun. Hey, Night Court. Let's yeah. go to Night Court. Um, and we both ignore it and work on our computers. Sure. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. That's how TV is. Uh, you heard, I'm sure, about Donald Trump. I did. I think, Donald, May, Donald I think a Trump, lot of people did. He's offending. Uh, he, I think what he's trying to do, again, I'm not sure he tried to do any of this. He just spoke off the cuff. As CBS opened their nightly news last night, they said uh, yesterday Trump was on message with his economic plan on teleprompter. Everything was fine. Today he goes off message and it says, and again, derails his campaign with a comment 
and the comment about Hillary and the Second Amendment. Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish, the Second Amendment. By the way, and if she gets to pick... If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. Now, we've had quotes on the air here where she said that she doesn't want to abolish the Second Amendment. She just wants to make sure that the people that aren't supposed to have guns don't shoot you. Yeah, not necessarily getting rid of the Second Amendment. Yeah. Uh, But then he's like, I don't know, but the people that are like believe in the Second Amendment or whatever he said. The, the Second Amendment people will take care of it. That that was his comment. Is now, that the lawyers for the Second Amendment people, or is well, that the people themselves? It, when he's when I heard the comment first, I went, okay, that could be taken two ways. One, political mobilization of people who want to support the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other side of it where people who support the Second Amendment have a lot of guns. He didn't mean what he said. Or didn't say. If you could explain what you meant. Well, I think you're talking about, I'm not sure because I haven't heard this question, but I think you're talking about the power of people that are in favor of the Second Amendment, and they have tremendous political power, uh, and I think they really are strong, they're united. So it wasn't a call to assassination, yeah. it was a call to unity. He was, he was talking about the power of the people that own guns, hmm. collectively unifying to fight for the Second Amendment, not... He, the, sh- he should have said that. Yeah, not yeah. the power, the gauge of the bullets. But he does. That could he does. This is the way he speaks. He doesn't clarify his what he's saying. He just leaves it out there. Mm-hmm. I think fully knowing that everyone's going to take their own interpretation and go either way with it because it does this. Yeah. But it was on the same day that Hillary Clinton was trying to deflect new emails. I know. Another chance which that... Which probably would have been the, the top story, except... Uh, well, Donald Steps Donald was talking about guns, so... Uma Abedin's... Uh, her email now has, is being vetted and is now being cleaned up by... Uh, what was the Justice Alerts group? Oh, um, Justice Watch. Justice Watch. They, or Judicial they, Watch. Judicial me. Watch has received her emails because of a Friends of Information Act, and they're now taking Uma Abedin's emails and saying, oh, this is what was going on behind the scenes in Hillary's office. People from um, Clinton Global Initiative were, net, were trying to get in with connections through Hillary Clinton's office in the um, as Secretary of State. Yeah. Hmm. The tangled web. And it would have been a big story, probably, except Donald gave them something else to eat. Yeah. So I didn't even know that happened yesterday. All the news I saw was talking about him and only him and the Olympics. That was it. There's no room for anything else. Isn't it? Isn't it great? I guess. We've got 90 days of this. A little less than 90 days. Yes! But we still have another week or so, week and a half of the Olympics, folks. So don't even think about politics. Just focus on the Olympics and try to figure out what's in that pool that made it turn green. Mm. Interesting stuff, folks. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with a, uh, a Ph.D. about the, the psychology behind creating an Olympian. Is it about the hours? Is it about practice? Does practice make perfect? Is it 10,000 hours you need in the pool in order to be able to swim like Michael Phelps? Stick with us, folks. Interesting discussion about really what uh, what we need to do if we want to become an Olympian someday. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for some, the Rio 2016 Summer Olympics, it's a celebration of patriotism, of American might, and world unity. For others, such events uh, like the Olympics bring memories of past athletic accomplishments, regret, sometimes the lingering question of what if. As children, we heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. And as adults, we've heard recently uh, in in a few books that have become very popular about the 10,000-hour rule, meaning if you practice anything for 10,000 hours, you will become an expert in that field. This raises the question, does practice make an Olympian? Can you make my child the next Michael Phelps? Here to answer those questions and ease our minds is Ph.D. Brooke McNamara, who's an assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University. Dr. McNamara, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Talk to us about uh, your article um, in the conversation, Does Practice Make an Olympian? Is, is it as simple as simply just working 10,000 hours, or do these people just have other things going for them? It's not that simple. Like most things with human performance, it's actually rather complex. And practice and training are, of course, very important and necessary, but they only explain part of the expertise puzzle. Ah, darn it. (laughs) So it's not that simple. So what makes up, uh, as you look at the puzzle and and examine it, what what really is the, the, I guess, the balance? What's the formula? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and I'm not sure we'll ever come to being able to complete that formula 100% because, like I mentioned, it's so complex. It depends on the sport. It depends on potentially your position within the sport as far as what's necessary uh, to contribute to become an expert. So part of it is practice, absolutely. We found that Practice accounted for about 18% on average Mm. differences across people. So to be clear, that doesn't mean that if you practice, you only get 18% better. What it's saying is if there are two people who have different levels of performance, then the differences in the amount of practice that they've accumulated over their lifetime only explains about 18% of those differences in performance. Oh, wow. I mean, really, I mean, that's that's not a lot, is it? it I, you imagine uh, um, uh, Michael Phelps, how on earth a guy has a seven foot wingspan, <laughs> webbed hands and feet or whatever. The guy's he's just a phenom. So he could practice 10,000 hours and then the next average guy next to him could practice 10,000 hours and it would still only make up for maybe 18 percent, you're saying. Right, exactly. And as you're mentioning, height, body size, uh, physical characteristics obviously make a difference. I think it's really clear when we watch the Olympics and we look at, say, the gymnasts next to the basketball players, obviously physical traits uh, and genetic factors are very important, and they contribute to this puzzle. And timing, it seems like, too, because to, to be a swimmer, to be the number two swimmer next to Phelps, isn't doesn't mean you get much attention and and yet you could be a phenomenal swimmer that in your own you know generation could dominate right there's all sorts of opportunity factors right so it might matter for example the women's gymnasts 
um, there were the top three in qualifiers were all Americans. However, you could only contribute two performers per country. So that third gymnast, even though she was better than the gymnast from all the other countries, wasn't able to compete. So, right, we we have rules. Sometimes they're arbitrary. Sometimes they just emerge naturally. That can make a difference in someone's lifetime performance. So... As we are raising our children and I stand on the sidelines and watch all of these dads that are trying to create the next, you know, Joe Montana or Brett Favre, um, what 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 are the things we should focus on that make up, I guess, the other parts of the difference? Right. Well, I think that we can begin observing what our children seem to have penchants for what seems to be a good match as far as their sport or other activity that's not a sport. And I think that parents can absolutely put in time and other resources that are necessary for practice and training. Some of these sports are really expensive to participate in, but they need to think of all the factors. If they are sure that just with enough training, their child will be the next Brett Favre, um, then they might be setting themselves up for disappointment, especially if their child is falling behind other children, maybe even children who started later or are practicing less. And so if it's something that's enjoyable for the parent, for the child, they're learning other skills, maybe social skills or just general team playing skills, other physical skills, then that absolutely might be worth it. But if the goal is only to become the best, then you might be spending a lot of resources in something that might not be the best match for your child, especially if he or she isn't really enjoying it. Mm. And you're taking them to practice, you drive there every day, you drop them off, and you assume just, you know, practice makes perfect, but I guess the research doesn't bear that out either, does it? Right. So practice obviously will improve performance, but an hour for one person is not the same as an hour for another person. For example, in a study with chess, where they examined chess masters, one person in their sample, this is a study by uh, Gobey and Campitelli, um, one person in their study who was a chess master had studied chess for about 3,000 hours before becoming a chess master. Hmm. Someone else in their study had spent over 23,000 hours to get to the (laughs) same level. Yeah, 23,000 hours isn't, it doesn't seem like as, as great of a song. (laughs) as 10,000 hours. (laughs) That's true. And that's just because they're different, right? uh, Where there's physical traits, then you have to take that into account as well. You can play chess for a very long time throughout your life, but there's some peak performance uh, times in a lifespan that need to be taken into account as well when we think of sports. So if we studied just the highest performing athletes in the world, would we we see any um, consistent themes or trends that made them excellent? Or is it really just very random? I mean, practice, obviously, some resources given to those practices. Anything else that stands out that makes them kind of universally phenomenal? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because we did examine the differences in contributions of practice when only looking at elite athletes. And at this point, everyone, of course, is practicing and training very hard, but among the elite athletes, practice then only accounted for 1% of the variance in performance, uh, and that was not statistically significant. So, for example, if you have someone who's a multiple Olympic gold medalist 
and someone who's competing at the national level but can't really get international success, they're probably practicing about the same. The person who can't reach the Olympics might have even put in more hours of practice. So certainly a lot of practice and training was necessary to reach the elite level. But once you get there, other factors really seem to be in play. So you mentioned some of them. For example, Michael Phelps, he has a phenomenal body type Mm -hmm. with physical characteristics that really contribute to him being a phenomenal swimmer. He would not do as well in gymnastics, presumably. (laughs) Some of that can be changed. You can build muscles. um, You can become leaner. But ultimately, you can't do much to change your height. You can't do much to change uh, how many fast twitch muscles you have relative to slow twitch muscles. Uh, and how much you have of each really contributes to how well you can perform, but differently at, with different sports. So there's no one perfect combination. It just depends on the sport that you're trying to achieve. Right. Well, and you, you look at um, Phelps and you think, wow, he's tall. He's got mm-hmm. a long reach. So basketball. And what if his dad, what if he was just a basketball fan and kept pushing him toward basketball and basketball? I guess there's a lot of value as a parent in trying to find the unique traits and talents of your child, not just go with your favorite hobby. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's going to be best for the child as well and for the parents, ultimately, because hopefully their child will have more success and they'll feel better about their decision. Mm. What uh, So as you study just uh, the kind of the relationship between practice and performance, uh, what else stands out in your mind? What else have you found in the research that was an aha for you? Um, well, there's other researchers doing fantastic research on other traits. So there are geneticists who are looking at microRNA and how that contributes uh, a person's maximum oxygen uptake level. Um, But then there's also research on what we would consider more classic psychological traits, such as a person's propensity to choke under pressure, their Mm. confidence in their performance, their competitive edge and motivation to perform well, how much a person prefers to win versus prefers not to lose. Mm. And all of these factors contribute to the individual and how they interact with the sport And it also depends on the coach that they have, uh, the resources that they have, and the other competitors in the field at that time. Like you mentioned, you might be the best in the world at at one point in time, but just depending on when you're born, you might be the fifth best person in the world or the best person in the world, even if your performance is no different. Yeah, it's almost like many times these, they come in waves of groups of people that just stand out as as top-notch as well. Okay, man, so much to discover here. Let's take a break and come back. We're speaking with Dr. Brooke McNamara about what makes Olympians. Is it about practice? We're learning it's, it's much more than that, and there are so many other things that make up this complex uh, reality of becoming a top-notch athlete. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, find out more about Uh, parents and what we can do as parents to, I guess, aid in the process of helping our children become the best they can be. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about what it takes to make an Olympian. Is it the 10,000 hours theory uh, coined by writer Malcolm Gladwell in 2008 that uh, he made popular in his books? Or is it, uh, you know, practicing makes perfect? Well, according to our our expert, Dr. Brooke McNamara, who's an assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University in the College of Arts and Sciences, she's talking to us about the fact that it's it's a whole lot more than that. And we welcome Dr. McNamara back with us. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you. When you when you think about it, um, it's really then is it is it it almost just seems random to a point, and then um, a lot of focus. Well, I think randomness does contribute to it, and people forget to take into account randomness um, within an individual and between individuals. So you can just have um, some inconsistent performance for no reason, and then there's luck as far as uh, where you happen to be born. Uh, But there are other factors that we can think about. So, for example, how quickly a person can learn a task, which just comes down to basic cognitive abilities, contributes to that, and how quickly they can move forward. The physical traits, like we've been discussing, as well as training and practice. All of those need to come together, and they need to come together in the right way for the sport. So the problem with the 10,000-hour rules and practice makes perfect is while they seem like really positive statements um, and very egalitarian statements, is they're not taking into account that sports are different, tasks are different, and that individuals are different, that we all bring something unique to the table. And we, I could just see somebody in an inner city um, – you know, tall, lanky, strong, being pushed to basketball, not swimming, even though his body type might be ideal for swimming. But there's not the there's not the resources, there's not the coaches, there's not the attention paid to it. I mean, it makes you wonder how many people could have been phenomenal in something that just never knew. Right. Absolutely. That and that unfortunately happens. Um, so even countries as a whole sometimes have a national focus. So the Dominican Republic has decided that baseball is going to be a national focus, and they've been producing some wonderful baseball players. Um, so, And those are resources that the government has decided to give. So absolutely, the resources available either from the parents or all the way up to the national level can make a difference of who is able to get the training necessary. What What do you advise parents out there, um, what are some of the basic things to remember and um, I guess some of the basic psychology for raising either those that have the potential to become, you know, incredible athletes or those that want to be? Um, Well, I think it's important to remember that if your goal is just to make your child the next LeBron James or Serena Williams, um, then you might be putting that over more important aspects of development. So if you are putting all your time and resources just in that, you're likely to be disappointed because most people aren't LeBron James or Serena Williams. Um, So I think parents need to keep in mind what the actual goals are. And if the goals are to uh, give your child a chance to develop physically, develop social skills, and do something that he or she really enjoys, 
then you're on the right track. And then if your child happens to find something that they really enjoy and that they're really good at, then the choice is easy and you can continue pursuing that. So I think for parents, it's about balancing finding the right activity for your child that's going to be best for them in terms of their interests and their pensions and abilities. Um, And then also finding that line of not letting your child give up too easily on something, but letting them find the right activity Mm. for them. Yeah, you got (laughs) to... You got to let them choose a little bit, but you also don't want them becoming, you know, easily quitting everything they start. Right. And that's that's a tough call. But parents tend to know their children and know which their child is doing if their child's not giving a new activity a chance um, or whether they've really decided that they're more interested in something else. And I think parents can expose their children to a lot of activities and that that'll help. Something else that we found in our research was that it did not matter the starting age of the sport. So when we compared elite athletes to sub-elite athletes within the same sport, the elite athletes and the sub-elite athletes had started their sport at about the same time. So parents, I think, sometimes worry that they need to find that sport early and get their kid in as soon as possible so that they can train as hard as possible. But again, this is buying into this 10,000-hour rule which essentially has been debunked. So practice, again, is important, but it's not everything. So parents can relax a little and know that if they haven't found the perfect sport for their child at age five, that's fine. They still have time. And do, do all of these rules apply to the arts, to being a dancer, to being, um, I don't know, maybe an actor as much as they or an in, playing an instrument as they do to sports? Yes and no. So in 2014, we conducted a large-scale study where we looked at all of the research that had focused on deliberate practice and performance across all domains in which it had been studied. So we looked at games such as chess, music, sports, education, and other professions. And in all cases, accumulated deliberate practice accounted for less than half of the variance. But it varied in how important it was. So for games such as chess, on average, accumulated practice explained about 26% of the variance. So again, this is looking across individuals with different, in this case, ELO ratings, so how highly ranked they are as a chess player. And differences in performance um, was explained by practice by 26%. So that's leaving 74% of those differences in performance explained by other characteristics, or at least explainable by other characteristics. Oh, interesting. So so it was, uh, by practicing is more beneficial in in the arts, in the games, than it is in sport. Yes. So in games, we found 26%, music 21%, and as a reminder, in sports, it was 18%. Yeah. And probably because physical characteristics are more important in sports than they are chess. Okay, here's here's the age-old question that if you can solve this, Brooke, you have earned all the money you've ever deserved. <laughs> um, so now my child, let's say, brings me the idea that they want to be they want to be an e athlete, um, you know, video gamer. Do you have any data on video gaming? We do not from this study. There has been. Some data looking at experience, but not specifically with deliberate practice, which is what we were examining. Um, 
So I'm not sure about that because that's still relatively new and people yeah. have a hard time researching that because um, in that case, it gets harder to log experience time and experience playing for fun versus deliberately like practicing, practicing to try to get better. Um, and at that point, it just might be so conflated that you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say with anything else, obviously, the more you do it, the the more important, the the better that you'll get. Um, but there probably will be differences in hmm. ultimate levels of performance a person can achieve. Do you have any insight on how to dissuade your child from wanting to play video games? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't. Okay. And I know parents vary quite a bit on, yeah. on how much they're okay with that. Yeah. What, uh, by the way, does any of this have uh, any, um, you know, insight, give us any insight into academics. I mean, some people, their, their focus hobby of choice isn't an instrument or a game it, or even sports. It might just be academics. Yes. So we also looked at educational performance. And what we found was that deliberate practice or, or serious study in this case accounted for about 4%, 4%. the differences among wow. individuals. Right. And that is significant. That's significantly more than zero. Again, study is important. But the reason why that seems to be so low is you can imagine a student who goes to, say, a biology class, listens to the lecture and just gets it. So reads through the book, looks at their notes, does well on the test. Another student goes to lecture, really struggles, and they study and study and study and still don't perform as well on the test. They've actually put in more study time but are still performing less well than the other student who just got it the first time. So sometimes you even see these negative correlations where the students performing worse are putting in more time and effort uh, just to reach a similar uh, level as the students who don't need to put in as much time Hmm. and effort. Wow. Um, that's, that's just interesting, isn't it? Uh, we, I, the funny thing is I think we look at all these things like they're all equal and right. we don't, we don't think through some of this, um, at a deeper level. As we wrap it up, we always like to ask for the one thing that is, that makes the biggest difference as we think about our children and, and helping them become the best they can be. What would you say is the one thing we can focus on? It's in our power. It's in our circle of influence to help them get the best shot at becoming elite? Um, Well, I would turn that around and say that that shouldn't be the goal. That the goal should not be for them to be elite. The goal should be for them to find an activity that they really enjoy. Start there, and then they'll naturally follow the path they want to follow. Exactly. And some children will become elite, and some won't. And, of course, this is a continuum, so... Some will right. be better than others. And, but if yeah. they're enjoying it and learning, then that contributes to their development. That's great. Good advice. Dr. Brooke McNamara, thank you so much for your work. And uh, keep writing, and we'll have you back on. This was fun great. stuff. Thank you for having me. Wonderful learning, again, uh, from Dr. Brooke McNamara, assistant professor at uh, Case Western Reserve. Uh, great stuff. When you, when you think about it, it's at some point, each and every one of us, We're parents, and if we're not careful, we're going to drive our child into this frenzy of needing to be something um, that, that may not even be part of who they are. Let's dig instead deeper into them, find out what they are bringing to the world before we try to push, uh, push them and force them into some mold. We'll take a break, come back, do a little coach's corner, 
helping us uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Coaching time. Here's the deal. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet you the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right. You've got these dreams that he's going to be like, Dad. He's going to throw the game winning pass. And then you see him line up, the coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout, everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing Deep in your head, what is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he can't outrun the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year. Spending five hundred plus dollars a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play, and uh, my wife, so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league, and my eleven-year-old and thirteen-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse. And tennis. Oh, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Eh, don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because... Sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not, those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. 
So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying. Are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete and uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team and he was just incredible. And his junior year, when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was, was a, the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what, what you're creating. And, and instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing. You know, a year ago, they were pushing a boat full of their family members to save lives. And now they're running a race and they actually didn't win. Right. But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives. Don't always just move to the medals list. Make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know, round a group that that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles. And I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids, they're very they're very willing to learn and open to uh to to have opportunity from the parents. So, a little coach's corner for you. We'll take a break. Come back a whole new hour next hour. Stick with us folks. This is the Matt Townsend show helping you become the best you can become. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Man, have we got a great show for you today. We will be um, digging deep into the importance of having a purpose. Do you have a purpose? When you watch the Olympics, you see all of these people. I mean, how would it be for four years knowing you have one goal? That goal is to either get a medal, maybe uh, win the gold, qualify. It gives you a purpose. Something that Terry has been fighting for years. Terry, what's your purpose? Still looking. Still looking. I'll let you know when I find it. You have a purpose coming soon. In your cute little family. 
Yeah. Yeah. That'll change. Oh, I know what your purpose is. Marvel Comics. Mastering. No. Getting a PhD in Marvel comicdom. I probably already have that, but no, it's not my purpose. Ooh, someone's got a little cockiness to him. I think saying it's a purpose is a little overstating it. Yeah, I think you're right. Hey, we've got uh, a lot to, to talk about. We'll get into a little bit of Olympics uh, sports. In fact, some of the Olympic events that no longer are events and some events that are events that maybe should they be? You're going to judge. I'm not going to judge. I'm just oh. throwing them out there. Speed walking. You don't think that should be an event? No. All right. Have you ever have you ever been to a Walmart on a Black Friday? Yes. Everyone in the building actually no qualifies. Speed walking. Speed walking. Not walking. They're stampeding. Yeah. Same thing. There's a TV for two hundred dollars. Go get it. Get it. But the funny thing at Walmart, none of them are wiggling their hips the way they do. No. Some people are just out. They're just sprinting. Yeah. As they're that, pushing other people's faces we, to the ground. What do we call those people in speed walking circles? Cheaters. Cheaters. Yeah. And what yeah. do we know about cheaters? They always prosper? They never prosper. Oh, I always get that wrong. Those are the lessons we, you only get here on the Matt Townsend Show. So we will be talking purpose, uh, speed walking, and other, other stranger Olympic sports, including the pepper eating contest, mm. which wasn't accepted by the Olympics, so they had to hold their own. We have one of our reporters out in the field reporting. Um, on a pepper eating contest. Fantastic coming up. Um, also, we are debuting Jeff Simpson, our new uh, our new host, co-host, our new board op, the replacement, if there is such a thing, for Ben Wasden. And he does nothing with ice cream except eat it. <laughs> is that right, Jeff? Graham Canyon. Is that your favorite? Mm-hmm. Graham? Creamery. Canyon. Graham Canyon. Mmm, that sounds yummy. So we'll get to all of that fun, plus the headlines. But uh, who better to walk us through the headlines than Caitlin Thomas? Caitlin? Thanks, Matt. So much to talk about this morning. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan easily defeated outside challenger Paul Nealon in his primary in Wisconsin on Tuesday. Nealon caught the eye of Donald Trump, who praised him before the GOP candidate eventually backed Ryan. Ryan was first elected back in 1998. In an interview with Times published Tuesday, Donald Trump confessed that he wants to deb- he wants the debate very badly and will absolutely do three debates with Hillary Clinton, but he needs to make sure the conditions are fair before he agrees to anything. Trump seems convinced he can succeed where past candidates have failed in convincing the commission to accept his terms and change a long-established event. Gunfire and violence broke out at a protest in Ferguson, Missouri on Tuesday night to mark the second anniversary of Michael Brown's death. Ferguson police responded to reports of gunfire at the event but said no one appeared to have been injured. Witnesses said the incident began when a car plowed through protesters and struck a man, sending him flying through the air. As the car drove off, witnesses said they heard gunfire. The report is currently under investigation. A New York City woman who disappeared while visiting her mother in Massachusetts was found slain in the woods, according to investigators, and the search is on for a suspect. Vanessa Marcote was reported missing after failing to return from a Sunday afternoon jog in Princeton. Her body was found by state police... A canine unit about a half mile from her mother's home. Authorities say her death appears to be a homicide and autopsy is being performed to determine the cause of death. A law enforcement source says she was found without any clothing and with burns on her hands, her head and her feet. At a press conference yesterday afternoon, police said the investigation remains very active. And lastly, Matt... 
If there was any question that the U.S. has the best women's gymnastics team in the world, it was answered yesterday what? for the fifth time. With two consecutive Olympic golds and world championship titles in 2011, 2014, and 2015, the U.S. women have made a seemingly unbreakable habit of winning and not just edging out their competitors by a few tenths, but leading the competition from start to finish and claiming victory by multiple points. Last night, Team USA finished with a team total of eight point. 209 points, qualifying them for the gold. After the score was announced, the women huddled together and cheered in unison, we are the final five. Pretty cool. Pretty fun to watch. Domination. Go check it out. That is really fun They cheered together? Terry, he's he's such a cynic. He He is. He's just trying to eat all the happiness out of the Olympics. This Olympic spirit is burning a hole in his cold heart. I Uh, I find it hard to get past the fact that everyone cares every four years. Terry. Yeah. But they have gymnastics all the time. Oh, There's college do? teams that get, compete gymnastics. Nobody tr- watches. Nobody to, cares. Matt, he's trying to suck all the happiness out of this. Will you just stop him? But then the Olympics happen and everyone loves gymnastics it's, or it's but you know figure what? skating or whatever it is. But you get excited about Donald Trump talk. You and love that Marvel. only happens once every millennia. Yeah, Marvel happens all the time. You love I'm Marvel. We love Olympics. It's, it's fine. It's not every four years I'm happy about Marvel. I'm happy every day about Marvel. Man. There's a lot of negativity. Anyway, I just, I go find Team it USA. Very Thanks, interesting. Caitlin. The attention. Like in a couple weeks, everyone's going to love track and field. Yeah. Well, who doesn't love track and field? Everybody. Nobody watches it. It's on TV at times. You can watch every all these college networks. They throw out the. Uh, you can watch all these colleges run. You know their steeplechase, and no one cares. You know what the problem is? You don't. You don't like gymnastics. You're I, an anti Take it or leave it. It's fine. They find the shortest people they can. They can pull off the moves. It's great. Oh, now you're against short people. Can no, I give you some perspective on that uh, gymnastics yeah. event? No. So, way, are you striking points. a pose right now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I landed it. Uh, landed. 10 seconds, I heard, is about the equivalent. If you were running a race, it's, it's the equivalent of lapping somebody. Or not 10 seconds, 10, 10 points. 10 points. 10 points. The it's equivalent like of lapping somebody yeah. in a race. Wow. See, so they, as a team, they lapped the rest of the competition. Correct. And if people watch gym, gymnastics yeah. all the time, they would know that a very small percentage or, you know, point difference is huge in yeah. that, that competition. But nobody knows this because nobody watches gymnastics. I think everyone was, because when I grew up, it was always the Romanians that would lap everybody. Yeah. But you wouldn't know that. Because they had that coach. What was his name? George. That was always kissing Bruce girls. Oh, wow. It was weird. But yeah. uh, very talented. Very talented coach. I think the thing is, if we had different events, you'd probably be more interested. Here are some events that have been that are okay. strange Olympic sports. We talked about jousting, how that yeah. needed to be an Olympic like, I, event. Like jousting, I think, would be fantastic. I'm totally on board. Uh, there's there used to be um, in 1984 and it was discontinued in 92. It was called Hans Solo. Okay. Not Han Solo. Hans Solo. What, Hans what was it? Solo. It's a, it's a, like it was frisbee? a competition no. of synchronized swimming. Okay. And was made an Olympic sport in 84. Discontinued in 82. But it's where <laughs> or I 92. think or right. 92. Okay. Sorry. And they they just synchronize their hands a lot more in the water. Yeah, that doesn't sound like anything different. Yeah. Maybe a club sport. You you wouldn't like synchronized swimming. I don't know. Yeah. Seems funny to put on all that makeup and jump in the water. Here's one that I'm pretty sure you'd love. 
Uh, have you it's ever like, heard? It's drill team swimming. It seems, I don't know. It seems it's, kinda... <laughs> and th- this one would have a whole different uh, name today because it just wouldn't work. But in 1904, the event called club swinging. Okay. Um, Is it golf? Was held. It's where the athlete stands uh, holding clubs that resemble bowling pins in each hand. He then twirls and whirls them around. And the more complicated the routine, the more points he wins. Juggling? Kind of. But more okay. twirling and whirling of pins. Rhythmic gymnastics without the flipping around? Yeah. Tumbling? Club, club swinging. Okay. By the way, but yeah. I am pretty sure that there's a lot of club swinging going on at the Rio Olympics. Could be. Uh, you. This sport ended in 1932. Tug of war, that would have been a good one. Was that, that was that that used that to was be an event? big? It was a big event. I'd watch tug of war. Uh, how cool would that be? Tug of war between countries? Yeah, you, like you that, could have settled the Cold War right there. Totally, yeah. right there. Russians would have won. They that had more Olympic steroids. That event did. ended in 1920, <laughs> and has just pretty much been relegated to the church picnic. Yeah. Uh, oh, here's a fun <laughs> Or the Battle of the Network Stars when they never do that exactly. again. Uh, an, an event that was huge in the ni- in 1900 was in uh, Olympics in Paris was live pigeon shooting. Nice. They gave that up. Yeah, They're not I doing see, that I anymore. I can see why that wouldn't last too long. I mean, one event was like 300 birds. The winner shot down 21 pigeons. They were pigeons, though. Real pigeons. Yeah. Which... Might not be bad in certain in yeah, certain do, cities. Depends on the city. There uh, uh, in I mean, South America, I know they have a uh, was it a canary? There's a canary problem. Oh yeah, hey, they're infested, so they uh, they want to use canaries. Do so depending on the country, you could change the species of bird. Check out this one. How about the swimming obstacle course? This really? was a big one in the nineteen games, nineteen hundred games in Paris. What kind of obstacles? Swimmers crawled over boats, swam under them, climbed a pole. Nice, all while swimming two hundred meters. Yeah, it'd be like these mud runs or the yeah. uh, dirty runs they do where they're running over tires and climbing ropes and jumping over huge walls. It'd be great. It was, I mean, fantastic, quite honestly. So, uh, I mean, that's a big one. Um, I'd love to see I'd love to see Phelps do that. Yeah. Could he climb in and out of a boat? No. Around a buoy? <laughs> uh, of course, there was roller hockey. That but, was really big, even in up to 1992 Barcelona games. Roller hockey? Argentina took the gold there. Huh. Um, one more that, you know, I think it just lost its luster is rope climbing. Just in general? I think it's sad. Rope climbing used to be a big uh, a big event in, in like the 1932 Olympics. Can you climb a rope? Yeah. I, I can also go down it. I can go down it a lot faster than climbing it. Well, you just let go, yeah. I haven't climbed a rope for 20 years. Did it a couple weeks ago. Did you? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you want to explain? What do you mean? Don't say you're at the gym. What was at the gym? Tell the truth. That's where you climb ropes. Uh, the tied to the rafters. Then there's the, the fast walking. But there's, yeah. you know, that, that's one that you don't like, I can tell. That just seems like you're going to dislocate a hip. You told me there's too much hip in it. And if you do it with a little bit more attitude, you will injure yourself. Because they do it with a lot of attitude. There's there's a high level of attitude in that sport. So do you think there should be a chili eating contest in the Olympics? Depends. Like to what level? Like what competitive chili eating. Okay. Hot, hot, spicy peppers. We actually have, they because they weren't allowed in the Olympics, a group of nine contestants went out mm. and had their own competition. And we sent one of our new reporters, Shik Shumway, there. Shik? Uh-huh. Shumway. Shik Shumway. 
As you know, China was banned from the 2016 Olympic chili pepper competition for substituting the spicy pod for red bell peppers in the qualifiers. So nine of those disgraced athletes came together to try and regain their honor by holding their own competition at home. I'm standing here waist deep in the legendary pepper waters of Chengdu, with the champion of the first ever Hung Fushin pepper eating contest. Lo Feng, as you can hear, the mood here is on fire. Now, Mr. Feng, 47 peppers in just two minutes. What was your strategy? Oh wow! I'm having a difficult time understanding you, Mr. Feng. What's that you said? Ah,、uh, it appears Mr. Feng's lips have swollen considerably. And his breathing has become rather labored. In, in fact,、uh, I myself am finding it difficult to breathe. Perhaps a quick drink of this water will soothe my throat. Oh, no, that made it worse. Eyes watering, lips swollen, mucous membranes becoming inflamed. Oh boy, check mouth on fire. Reporting live from the pepper waters of Chengdu, I'm Shik Shemwei. Shik, wow, wow, like his face. Did、swollen. you see his face? Yeah, that's dangerous. That reminded me of a Marvel comic segment. Swollen face, man. That's not a thing. Shik, man, but what a professional way to bring it、mm. home. He actually still did his out cue. Right. With those lips, did you see those lips? And any other reporter would have just given it、out. up. Yeah, he wouldn't have finished. It's like he had saddlebags. Yeah, it's like he swallowed a saddlebag. Wow. Will he be doing more reporting for yeah. us?、Uh-huh. Yeah, but we got to remind、uh-huh. him to like. You don't have to get into the water. Was the that a, water? Was that an allergic reaction to the peppers?、Uh, I think so. Or was it the heat? Well, I saw him splash some water on his face, and then he drank some.、Hmm. You don't drink. But it's pepper water. Water from the Chengdu province. Wow. Pepper water. Maybe he needs an EpiPen just for just for good course. Yeah, he's probably allergic to it. Boy, that other guy too. Forty-seven、mm. peppers couldn't even talk. That was sad. Yeah, that's probably why it's not in the Olympics. I'm gonna just check that one off. Kind of dangerous. Very dangerous. Anyway, it's good to have Shik on the show. Shik Shumway. We'll have a lot more from Shik. Nobody puts his heart into the show more than Shik. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're gonna be talking about purpose. Do you feel dissatisfied with your life? If、uh, if somebody asks you why do you go to work, Dad? Not if it's not money or whatever. Why do you work? Would you say your purpose? Because it's part of your purpose. Or are you nowhere near your purpose in life? Stick with us, folks. We're going to help you build meaning in your life and in yourself. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you feeling dissatisfied with your purpose in life? If you are, it might start with clocking in, you know, bidding your time, and then clocking out. If you feel like a zombie with no purpose, or you、uh, you feel like you're in despair, there's no way out of this 
Today on the show, we uh, we may have the perfect guest for you. Dan Pontefract joins us, author of The Purpose Effect, Building Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. Dan is the chief envisioner at TELUS, a Canadian telecommunications company, and he's uh, written extensively on the topic of purpose. And Dan, we're honored to have you here. Thanks for being with us. Matt, it's a delight. Happy morning to you. Thank you, and happy morning to you. Uh, purpose, you know what? If you don't have it, I... I, I I wonder how you get through life without having a sense of where you're going and why you're here. Is it is it a I have it. I I don't know where I got it. I just grew up kind of knowing where I, what I wanted and 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 what created a a, a moment. What's the word? Created a a power in me to want to become more. What are there a lot of people that don't have that? Well, you're one of the lucky ones, and I think I am as well. But uh, research proves that there are only about, uh, depending on what research survey, 20 to 25 percent of us that actually have found their purpose in life that corresponds to what they're doing at work. So, yeah, both of you, both you and I are lucky. It really is 20 percent. I mean, and I see it in my other work where I where I'm working with couples and people that are just so frustrated with life and their job and and the energy and purpose i guess is something then we can go track down right we can go intentionally intentionally start trying to find our purpose well i think what i've seen happen though is that um you know people will they go through high school they might go to college and let's say those that do even you know they come out of that and they're like well i need to work right so there's almost there's almost like a de facto well you know, that job that I just take to pay the bills has now become sort of, you know, a third, a quarter, maybe even half of my purpose. And that's when things start to really go awry. It's as though there's a default, uh, you know what, that's my job and that's also part of my purpose. And I hate it, but, uh, you know, that's the way life is. So they, <laughs> it's almost like a, they fall into a crutch of apathy. It's true, huh? And it's you've been handed kind of the role of your job, but and then I guess you have a family, and they might they bring you purpose, except maybe not. And then I mean, it's almost like a lot of things are handed to you, and you bring up in your models, um, your organization you work for might give you a purpose, your job might give you a purpose. Talk about uh, your book, the Purpose Effect: Building Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. How? How do you go about, I guess, creating a, that that sweet spot between all of those? Well, I, I truly believe, and I think through the interviews, the research, uh, my own personal experience, and, and maybe on the, the revision of this book, Matt, I'll have to interview you. But uh, it really it starts with you. You know, it, we, all, we all put on our socks or our dresses or shoes, whatever it is, in the morning, and we've got to look in the mirror and we've got to brush our teeth. And, and I think a lot of people are forgetting about that mirror, you know, and, and so really the book is about a Venn diagram. And for those that don't know what that means, a Venn diagram is just three circles. And there's an intersection point in the middle. And all three circles sort of overlap one another, right, to get to that middle, middle point. So at the top of the Venn, the first circle is, is you. It's your personal purpose. You know, what are you about? Uh, why are you here? Uh, how are you going to show up each and every day? Like those are some kind of key fundamental questions. Do you have dislikes? Do you have likes? Like, do you know what drives you? Do you know what you want to steer clear of? If you're a postal worker but, but don't enjoy physical exercise, <laughs> it, it's, it's going to be pretty problematic. <laughs> Torture. The bottom two circles. Right. Right? 
And the two bottom circles quickly are organizational purpose. So what does the organization stand for? Again, if you're, if you're into environmentalism and you work for oil and gas, maybe not a great spot for you, right? <laughs> and then on the, the left, the far left uh, circle, is role purpose. So we all, you're right, we all have a role. We, 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 we have a job at, at work. So if what you're doing inside of that role, even though you may like the organization, let's say, but if the, if the job requirements are such that you're, you're aghast, aghast with or against, you know, you're just you're going to fall out of misalignment, essentially. And, and so anyway, if the good news is that if there's an alignment between the personal purpose, who you are, what you're about, how you're going to show up each and every day, you really enjoy the organization's purpose, what it's doing to serve society. And we can come back to that in a bit. And you enjoy your role at work. If this all intersects, you you have a sweet spot. But ironically, so does the organization. So it's really mm-hmm. a book written for leaders in the org, and you as an individual person as well. So if I were in HR hiring somebody, it would be smart for me to try to find somebody who's who has a personal purpose, and that purpose fits into their role I'm hiring for and the organizational purpose. Then, then I've got probably their full capacity. Yeah, precisely. I mean, if, if you were someone let's say in HR and you're hiring a marketing manager and and they are a marketing manager fantastic and so they've got you know 10 years of experience in marketing okay so you bring them into the organization uh, but for whatever reason you know they you forgot to ask the questions about what widget is that you're selling and maybe they are against widget B and let's call widget B cars for some reason so they don't like cars okay but before they were marketing beer they were much better, and they really enjoy beer, but for some reason they take public transit and they're not into cars. Like <laughs> That's going to come out in their work, and they're right. going to fall into what I call the job mindset in their role. And so the organization suffers because you have a disengaged employee now. And as it turns out, that poor individual that's now joined the organization, you know, they sort of forgot to ask those questions of themselves. Why do I want to work at an automobile company uh, if you know I enjoy beer better? Yeah. And so they fell, fall into a sort of a state of disrepair in their life. And so that affects, as you'll know, with your background and your work, you know, that affects the home, that affects the community, that affects the kids or the family. So and, and we need the job, the the but Dan, we need the job, right? So I'm just going to get the job because I need the job. And But if we're not thinking about the purpose of the company I'm going to work for, and if it doesn't jive with me, you, you like you're saying, you've got a job. What was the name you call that? It's a... Uh, it ends up, it just ends up, it's just going to suck the life out of you. Yeah, it becomes hedonic. Yeah. Oh, boy, so, yeah. You know, hedonic, just, one of those fancy words. Yeah. yeah it's just like, it's, it's like a paycheck. It's very transactional. And but what so if I love the company, up? but I hate my role in the company? Like, I don't want to be in sales. I want to be in content creation. And you keep wanting me to be in sales. And then I might love the job. And I might even think I need to be in this company. But I don't like what I mean. I, I love my company. but And I feel a purpose in it. But I don't like what I do every day. Then you're going to lose me, too. Well, I'll give you a personal example, right? So, And you're right. So this is the responsibility of the leader in this case. So let's say you're leader X. And in my case, I was a director of what was called uh, education services. And so I'm at a high-tech company. It's about, um, about nine years ago now. And this woman, Megan, 
uh, was on my team, and she was a, a courseware developer, like an instructional designer. So she made courseware for some of the products that we were doing. Uh, and and one day, you know, I'm looking around, I'm like, you know, Megs, is this is this for you, or maybe, you know, is there something else that you want to do? I mean, you're good at this, but I'm not sure your heart's in it. And now I know you like our company. Our company is about nine thousand people, and very philanthropic company. She was really into all the good, you know, higher purpose things of the org. And after a few conversations, Megs and I, she's like, you know what? I want to help people. And I was like, okay, well, let's get you into HR. Let's figure out a way to career path you into HR. Now, I was losing a phenomenal resource, um, but the organization stood to lose the resource in totality Mm. if she left. Yeah, yeah. So I think leaders have to sort of put park their egos at the door, so to say. It's kind of like, um, do you remember um, We Are the World? Uh-huh. And, uh, and Spring, Springsteen came to the studio, and he put a, a note on the door, and it said, "Park, tra- check your ego at the door before entering. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, it's sort of like that. You, you, leaders have to do that. And so Megs has gone into HR, and now she's been there for the last, well, nine years, and she loved it. No, to- I, had a, I had a boss that um, basically got me my launch, helped me launch my career he had the highest turnover in the company because he that's what he would do is help everybody make their <laughs> dreams come true but he had the highest um he had the highest uh sales percentages of anyone in the company because they'd all work really hard and then as soon as they accomplished goals they had win wins and then he'd move them to the next place in the company where they all would want to be and you know, it, and it was so fulfilling cuz you knew you were working for a purpose and you're touching on two things, right? So you're touching on the leader who is selfless, mm-hmm. and and that's really what leaders ought to be: is selfless, thinking out for the higher good of both the individual employee they lead, the team that they serve, and the organization that they contribute to. Right? So there's the selfless part. But you're also actually, interestingly, um, knocking on the door of selfishness. Mm-hmm. And the selfish leaders, which are again, they are a dime a dozen in our in our industries and right. our organizations. They will hoard the resource. They'll protect. Yeah, they'll Keep ensure it in. that they can. Yeah, like it's that's that's where the maniacal nature of the beast of the organization comes to fruition. And the poor helpless employee is like, well, I guess I'm stuck here. <laughs> so it's again, it's all interconnected. It's like an ecosystem gone wrong. That's right. And what was interesting about this guy too is he. Everybody in the company trusted him as kind of the incubator. Um, mm-hmm. And what he would do is he'd create a win-win. Like my win-win with him was for four months. He asked me where I wanted to be. I wanted to be a consultant, a speaker, a trainer, a content developer, and he needed sales out of me. And what they wanted as a company, they wanted all the people that were going to be kind of in the sales and client services division to go through his department. So I, he, he told me I, what kind of – what he needed was were sales, what I needed to move on. We created an agreement that allowed me in four months of hitting certain numbers under certain conditions, he would personally move me to where I wanted to be. And it, it empowered me so much, but he still got his win. And um, and because and every by the way everybody in the group was different. Some wanted a better title so they could go to grad school. Some wanted uh, you know better pay because they had kids, and some wanted to just move on. And he would find out what each of us wanted. And by the way, which which I guess is connected to our purpose, right? Yes, that's exactly it. So the the myopic leader who is only in it for herself or himself 
and is only thinking about their own performance objectives, their bonus targets, like just for them, that, that creates this, uh, this beast. But when you have, sure, okay, so your guy in this case got what, out of it what he wanted, but he also knows he's there to serve the organization's higher purpose, mm-hmm. which is fueling talent, right? Whether, right. as you say, by career development and someone wanting a better title or moving on, in your case, to another part of the org. There, I, I don't know. It's, similarly, it's kind of a correlated uh, point here. If only about 20% of us have a purpose in life and at work, the uh, same sort of research suggests that there are only about 20 to 30% of us engaged in right. our roles at work, and that includes the leaders. Oh, That's crazy. Totally. Let's take a, ba- a break, Dan. Come back. I want you to walk us through some things we could do to find our purpose uh, on the personal level and the organizational as well as our role. Uh, interesting insight, folks. As you're out there listening, is this your organization? Do you notice that only 20% of the people you're sitting around are engaged? They do feel like their purpose is being manifested through this process of work and their role there. Stick with us. We're going to uncover it more with Dan Pontefract when we come back. to the Matt Townsend Show. So if I put a microphone up to you and ask, what is your purpose in life? What would you say? Would you know? Now that's a big kind of life purpose issue. But you need to know why you're here, what you're about, how you want to contribute to the world, how you want to be remembered. That's how I learned to do this is by thinking about, okay, when all is said and done and they're, you know, there's putting... Matt Townsend underneath the ground. How do I want my kids to think about me, my family, my coworkers? And it helped me find more and more about my purpose. And then I, I actually could just keep narrowing it down to one or two or three things. But um, as our guest today, Don Pontefract is joined. Dan Pontefract is joining us. He's the author of the book, The Purpose Effect. Building Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. He has been teaching us that uh, there's three things we need to, to, to find purpose in and, and make sure they align in an effort to find our sweet spot at work. And we have to have our personal purpose, our uh, organizational purpose. We have to kind of buy into the company, buy into the organization we're working with and, and feel connected to that. And we also have to buy into our role in that company. And when those three things come together, bada boom, bada bing, you found your sweet spot. So Dan Pontefract, welcome back to the show. Thanks for uh, helping us with this. Thanks, Matt. I'm really delighted to be here. Talk to us more then um, as we go through the the process of finding purpose. How do you how do you suggest we identify it? Well, if you're trying to find your personal sense of sweet spot, right? So, you know, we all have to work forty ish hours a week. We all have to pay rent or mortgage, car payments, you know, kids' tuition, whatever the case may be. We have to work. So let's recognize that it's very difficult to find so-called purpose if you're not looking at the 168 hours we all have in a week. So that's step one. Mm. Like I, I find that people who truly find the sweet spot recognize that, that life is comprised of the things you do personally and the things you do professionally. So that's kind of step one. But what I often help people with is sort of the, the likes-dislike game. 
Yeah. So in your life, in personal purpose, what are those likes of yours and your dislikes? And just get a, a piece of paper out, a whiteboard, whatever. Just start writing them down and just take a look at that. And hopefully you've got more likes and dislikes and start, you know, uh, putting the likes together into into sort of pockets or, or categories or, you know, circles. Say, oh, look at where these are trending to and do the same thing for the dislikes. But then, you know, I often ask people then to say, okay, now don't look at your boss, don't look at your team, don't look at your job, but just look at the organization you work for. And start doing the same thing. The likes-dislikes games. What are the things that are really making you happy, if you will, about your organization? You know, if you're really into community service, does your organization deliver community service? Hmm. And if so, what are some of the things that you like? Same thing on the dislike side. Is it a company that is too focused on profit or too focused, in some cases, on shareholder return? Like some of these deep, entrenched, uh, arguably flaws in, of the organization, if there are too many of those, you know, you might, might want to cluster those and right. say, wow, that's a lot of dislikes. But then finally, go back to your job. And your job, your role, as I say, is, is really important because that's where you're, you're spending the predominant portion of your time of a work week, of the waking hours in a work week, Monday to Friday, right? So, again, do the like-dislike thing and just sort of say to yourself, you know what? And then kind of look at all three and say, huh, well, this is some interesting finding. And it's really easy exercise to do. Is this... But then... Oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was just going to say, as a manager... Uh, I would love to bring you in, and then I start thinking, man, Dan, if I bring you in and you have all my people starting to question if they should be here, that's many would think that's that's a dangerous thing, but really, you're unleashing potential. That's the best word you could use. I think you should write a book called Unleash Your Potential. I'm going to write that that's down exactly right there. What that, that's exactly the point. So the, the next, I guess, tip or step I suggest for people is to then take a look at all those likes and even the dislikes, right? But um, you've heard of a company's mission statement, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that we, we, as individuals, as humans, fail to define our own mission. And so, essentially, I call it the, the declaration of purpose. So what's your declaration of purpose? What's that one line or two lines that defines you, that's going to decide how you show up each and every day, and that will ultimately give you your development path. And it's just, it's sort of like your North Star. Hmm. It's this, oh, I keep coming back to this one or two lines, could be three lines, there's no right or wrong answer here in length, but it's that definition of who you are, how you're going to show up, and, and what you're all about. And, yeah. and so that's you. Yeah. And, and then you've got to start asking those deeper questions with with your colleagues, with your boss, maybe, I hope, yeah. have an open relationship right, with others and just say, where do I fit? You know, like my story about Megan, like the story about your boss and yeah. where you were and, and how you, quote, graduated to the, the next part of the organization. Like, that's, that's what we need. What do you do if you find yourself, after you've done your purpose kind of statement, and you find your, you, the ladder's against the wrong wall? It's actually in the wrong stadium. Yeah. So again, that goes back to the reality. Like I'm not, um, I'm not unpragmatic. I understand. No, you got to pay the bills. More exactly right. So, so within the organization that you're working for, I start talking with your boss, other colleagues, HR. 
like start thinking about things like, um, hey, could I go do like a, a one week rotation in that role over there maybe and try to work that out or, mm. or even just do some shadowing. You know, what, what, are, what are some ways for you to get involved maybe in a cross-departmental project? How do you sort of insert yourself into the equation and say, you know what, I know I'm in IT or I know I'm in HR, but I'd like to go work on this finance project. Is there a way that I could perhaps be part of that team for three months? And just, you know, that's the whole point of we, we all ought to be uh, better autodidacts, right? Uh, another word that basically says we should be um, self-developing. And, and you really are in charge of your own development path. So if right. you don't say anything... No one's ever going to stick up for you. You got to you got to take the bull by the horn, so to say. Bada bing, bada boom. To your sort of Tony Soprano point. <laughs> and I guess what's great about that. So if I if I have my personal purpose and I'm in an organization and a role that I don't like, I could I don't have to throw it all away and go start again. I can go leverage where I am, try to start growing myself into a different role purpose, and then I'll have two of the three of the Venn diagram, the the three legs of the stool we're trying to build here. And then that might give me, you know, notoriety in in my new area, my new role to go get a different job, or maybe I'll see the company differently because I'm in a different part of the company. Or you might even create a whole new role. Yeah. Like that that's the outside the box kind of thinking, right? So a personal example. So when I joined Telus, the the, the company you mentioned, uh, the Telus uh, community or sorry, the telecom company in Canada, I joined in uh, November of 2008 as a chief learning officer. And so there I am helping the organization with culture, with purpose, with leadership, with learning, and so forth. I'm about uh, three and a half years into the gig, and things are going really well. Uh, and, I, and I love it. I'm in a sweet spot. The, the organization is doing great. I'm ha- everybody. Like, it's just fantastic. Mm. But I knew that come to the end of about the five-year mark, maybe a bit afterward, I knew that I would become bored. And so what I did was I started my own kind of rotations into the sales organization, and I started to create this idea with our C-suite that perhaps we could create a function that was an external consulting operation that would help our customers with their own culture, engagement, purpose, quest. Mm. And so two years after that sort of idea, we launched at Telus an external consulting shop, which of which I'm now the chief envisioner of. <laughs> bada so boom, bada bing. That's great. <laughs> but my, yeah, my point is, I think you can also chart your own course right. if you have that type of background and you know ultimately uh, support. You know, and I, I guess that's so empowering that for some that are out there thinking, well, yeah, that's easy for Dan because he's smart and has all of this stuff. But maybe that's what happens when you're on purpose is it gives you more hope. It gives you more vision. It gives you more energy, more capacity to do more, to create well, more. A, exactly. So there's a story of Tim McDonald. He's a realtor in Chicago, and he, he kind of likes realty, and he's doing fine. But he's like, you know what? I'm missing more. I, I need a team. I need a community. So he builds out this community, online community uh, company, essentially, and he's teaching people how to be community managers in the early 2000s when, you know, like community discussion groups and forums were just starting, right? He gets a call from Arianna Huffington of the Huffington Post. She says, she says, wow, I love what you're doing. Could you move to New York and can you set up HuffPost Live? And Tim's like, oh my gosh, what just happened? So (laughs) his family, they moved to New York and they're working at Huffington Post. 
He's doing it. He's in it for about four years. He's loving it. He's loving it. But he goes and does a keynote in Dallas at a, sort of a philanthropy conference. And he sees this group on stage called Be the Change. He's like, Be the Change? What are they talking about? And they're talking about how to curb um, the sort of the, the lack of um, food for kids, like malnourishment in kids across America. Hmm. Like, and so he had an epiphany. Now, here he is from Chicago as a relatively successful realtor to working beside Ariana Huffington, no less, to going to this sort of happenstance conference. And he's like, actually, that's what I'm about. And he, he sort of networked with the Be the Change organization to see if he could find a role wow. in that team yeah. shortly thereafter. So I guess my other point is, it really is up to you. It doesn't have to be in that organization. Mm-hmm. He went from making lots of money to less money. But this is what happened to him. He needed to fulfill that sweet spot for himself. Even though he was with Arianna Huffington, he enjoyed it, but he still said there was something more missing, and, and he went out and, and found it. Yeah. Ooh. that's uh, Again, it's that's powerful. I guess that's the, the purpose effect, right? Building meaning in yourself, your role, and your organization. Um, as we wrap yeah. up, give me – I always like to ask the one thing. What's the one thing that we could do today – that would have the biggest effect on me starting to find that purpose and, and drive it to my sweet spot? I think we all have to remember that uh, we are in charge of our own journey and that no one is going to pave the path unless you hold the shovel. Hmm. You got to start digging. You got to start digging, Matt. That's cool. Dan Pontefract, thank you so much for your great uh, insight. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. Good luck, everyone. Best of luck to you. The Purpose Effect, building meaning in yourself, your role, and your organization. You can find out more about Dan at uh, danpontefract.com. danpontefract.com. Excellent stuff, folks. You got to start digging. It's your shovel, right? It's your world. It's not going to be paved without your work. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Helping you become the best you can become. That's the goal of the show. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. When we talk about purpose, I mean, with the Olympics going on, it's pretty powerful, right? You see these people who have spent their lives working for something, really not eating, working every day to get to the gym, to then do what they have to do to be in shape, to to make these Olympic dreams come true. And part of uh, this, in our last hour, we got, we got into what makes an Olympian. Is it just exercise? I mean, is it just the work ethic? Is it 10,000 hours? Is it practice that makes perfect but maybe the real answer is purpose. You got to have a purpose and know what your life is about. Um, so dig in deep. Go go take uh, go start making that list of what you like and what you dislike. Go start to think about how you want to be remembered when you're done with this whole test called Earth, um, because how you want to end it is pretty important. What you want people to say at your funeral is pretty important. Ironically, we have a a crazy story of a man who wrote his own obituary, and then he banned certain relatives from the funeral. A German man has taken his grudges to the grave 
This may not be, I guess it is, exactly how he wanted to be remembered. Telling relatives in a posthumous newspaper noticed that some of them aren't welcome at his funeral. Hubert Martini published his own obituary in a local newspaper in western Germany. And uh, it's interesting, usually Ben's here to speak German for us, right? But Ben's not here anymore. Ben has, has left the building. But Jeff Simpson's here, and Jeff uh, also knows German accents. Ja. <laughs> so here's what I want you to do. This is, this is what uh, Hubert Martini said, right? The, he describes himself as three things. Jeff, in German, what are those three things? The three words I would use to describe myself would be open, honest, and unforgiving. <laughs> Beautiful. You know, when it's said in a little bit of a German accent, it makes it so much more beautiful. He's open, he's honest, he's unforgiving, and says his five siblings and their families are forbidden or forboden. Forboden. Forboden from attending his memorial service. They're forboden, folks. That's how you want to go down, being remembered like that. In uh, in his notes, um, he, he wanted the last word on his life, and this is his last line. I have hurt some people, and that is good. <laughs> oh, boy. Bless Hubert Martini for teaching us a great lesson. And they, I think, apparently named a drink after him. Crazy, crazy stuff. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered by not allowing five families to come to your funeral? I don't know, folks. It's a short life. Let's make it a better one. Let's make it so everyone can come. And let's have ribs. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the show. Stick with us, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number three. If you missed the first two, you're going to want to go back. Find out how to be an Olympian. Does practice really make perfect? And we talked about the importance of having a purpose in life. This hour, again, we're not going to let you down. What's happening inside of the brains of men and women when they work together? We have an expert that can finally explain it. Hmm. Super exciting. Notice I'm holding my tongue. Yeah, Dr. Joseph Baker (laughs) is going to walk us through some of his latest research out of uh, Stanford University, he was the lead author of a paper on sex differences in neural and behavioral signatures hmm. of cooperation. Do you ever have that when someone asks a question mm-hmm. and in your head you're like, option one, no. Option yeah. two, no. I'll just sit here quietly. I have an alarm that sounds, <laughs> eh, 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 do not say anything. But you got to be careful because like if your wife says, do I look fat in this? Yeah, too long a pause, the is, pause is too telling, yeah. Absolutely. Well, unless she is pregnant, then you still know. don't want the pause. But it would be <sighs> fitting a pregnant pause when they're pregnant. Yeah. Especially if you explain your pause in that well, way. Well, what if she says, Do you find me attractive? Oh, you always say yes, sir. Pregnant pause? No. 
You don't want to wait. Like reflex action. Like, baby, yes, no one. way. You're gorgeous. Yes. <laughs> I'm so into you. Hey, we got uh, that going on, helping you understand the differences in cooperation in male and female minds, what's going on there. Plus, uh, we're going to visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. We have an incredible video coming up of what it looks like and sounds like to be aboard a drone, Mm. flamethrowing drone, during turkey hunt day. Wow. Where'd we get that video? It's incredible. Uh Uh-huh. And it's it's so... it's. Was it on YouTube? Ish. Ish? Yes. And the funny thing about it, it's now in the court system. Yeah. But we have a video. Weaponizing drones has people concerned. A lot of people are just doing little homegrown drone weaponization. Yeah. Danger. But the flamethrower on a drone. Pretty bad. It's pretty pretty interesting to watch. This sadly, this one was hunting down a turkey, which lived. So the turkey was, the turkey just had the startle of its life. Yeah. A little crispy on the ends though. (laughs) We'll get to that. A little overcooked. No turkeys were harmed. Oh, okay. In the making of that video that we found that we will play on our show. But first, before we do all of this, again, getting to our hero, everything else we've got to do today, let's get to Caitlin Thomas for the headlines. Caitlin? Thanks, Matt. The good news for Donald Trump and poll released on Wednesday is that 70% of registered Republicans want him to stay in the race as the GOP nominee. On the other hand, 19% of Republicans want him to drop out and 10% don't know. The numbers are worse when they looked at all registered voters. 44% say they favor Trump exiting the race, which also notes is nine points higher than his support for the presidency and the latest tracking poll registered on Monday. In Tuesday's tracking poll, Hillary Clinton led Trump by seven percentage points. Shortly after Donald Trump on Tuesday told supporters that Second Amendment people could stop Hillary Clinton from selecting Supreme Court justices, the National Rifle Association leapt to the GOP nominee's defense. They tweeted out, if Hillary Clinton gets to pick her anti-Second Amendment Supreme Court judges, there's nothing we can do. Hashtag never Hillary. A new report from the Department of Justice set to be released on Wednesday finds that the Baltimore Police Department routinely violated civil rights. The department disproportionately targeted black residents in poor neighborhoods in the city. In one instance, supervisors have issued explicitly discriminatory orders such as directing a shift to arrest all the black hoodies in a neighborhood. And here's your last headline for the day, Matt. This one's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Late night pizza is as much a staple of college life as classes, dorms, and exams. But fresh pizza in the middle of the night isn't always easy to find. This past week, Xavier University in Cincinnati eased students' quest for around-the-clock munchies by installing a pizza ATM. America's first pizza vending machine opened 24-7 pizza ATM dispenses fresh pizza to hungry students within three to five minutes of ordering. The 12-inch pies cost $9 to $10, depending on toppings. The vending machine holds 70 pizzas at a time. University officials say the quality of the machine-made pizzas will not differ from dining hall pizzas. They are still hand-prepped by staff in the Xavier Dining Hall, um, which has won two national awards, by the way, for its food in the past three years. But instead of the pizza being cooked by staff, it's heated up in the machine at 475 degrees. They wanted to note that the school said the vending machine will be available for students when they arrive on campus later this month. Wow. I can just, I wish I want one. I can hear the phone calls from parents. Timmy, <laughs> you're sure using your ATM card a lot. I, yeah, Bob. I, I think it's a great idea. I personally think it's a great idea. Do you like it? I do. But you'd have to walk to the pizza vending ATM. Maybe what they ought to do is well, have somebody that could, you know, drive you over there, pull you in a wagon. Like an Uber driver to take you all the way to the machine, order your pizza, and then Uber that, you back. You may as well go to Chipotle. 
You're already out. There you have it. Wow, cool story. Thanks, Caitlin. Man, things are changing for the students. Apparently, these dispensers have been in Europe Mm. for over 14 years. Wow. They're typically in small towns at gas stations. Well, that wouldn't be bad. Every small town deserves a little pizzeria ATM. I guess. Do they have other foods other than pizza? Maybe. I guess, yeah. I've been to a 7-Eleven where I had to heat up a burrito. That's and a, I could do it in three minutes or less. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, we got a lot of news uh, to get through. Of course, the Olympics are going crazy. 21 gold medals now for Michael Phelps. Yeah, I think the guy's a good swimmer. That man can swim. Plus, uh, the gymnastics team, unstoppable. Basically lapped the other teams uh, in their score by being, what was it, 10 points ahead? Unbelievable. That's amazing. Uh, plus, the other swimmers, Ledesky, they're doing great. Wonderful stuff. And just the, the stories that keep coming out of there. Uh, and as we discussed in the first hour, green water. I'm going to be asking uh, our good brethren down at uh, BYU Sports Nation if what they think the green water is. Because I have an idea. They'll know. Really? They, they know everything about sports. Why, why is that sports related? Why isn't it just bad sanitation in the water? Bad contamination? Because it's in the Olympics. Bad mix of chlorine and whatever else they toss yeah. in there. It's in the Olympics. Okay. So they would know. I think what it is, somebody's green dye came out of their suit. Why would they have green dye? Because they, they, their suit was green. Oh, okay. It's one of those things they needed to wash uh-huh. it a few times. Just to... It's the person okay. that didn't wash their suit. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's pretty easy. Yeah, it turns the entire pool green. Right? Problem solved. There you go. I don't see the problem. Hey, um, lawsuits abound. They're everywhere. Okay. And legal situations, legal issues are, it's, you can't even be a kid anymore. You can't be a dad and a son having a little project without creating a, a, an issue. A Connecticut father and his son are headed to court now for a showdown with the FAA over whether the agency can force them to disclose information about drones that they have shown on YouTube videos. One drone was firing a gun and the other was deploying a flamethrower in their backyard. Uh, Austin Hogwatt and his father, Brett Hogwatt. Who? I don't know. Okay. Are refusing to comply with subpoenas, saying that these subpoenas violate their constitutional right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures and questioning the agency's authority to regulate recreational drones. The Hogwatts uploaded the videos, uh, Austin, the, the boy did, to his YouTube channel last year. By the way, one video has been viewed more than 3.7 million times showing a flying drone equipped with a handgun. I've seen it. I saw it when it was right when it came out. Yeah, I've got a few of those. Handgun ones. firing rounds. And then another one was about the flamethrower. They were trying to cook a turkey they dinner. A cur- a cooking a turkey dinner. That was amazing. Now, we don't have that very video, but we have another video, and it might be a copycat video. Those pop up. That's on the YouTube. problem That's with what this. Happens. There's always a copycat. And yeah. on the show, we like to show more video, even though it's a radio show, because we like the visuals. Mm. So here is. Which totally makes sense. Totally. <laughs> uh, here's a video of a, a drone, flamethrowing drone, I guess, trying to 
get a turkey dinner. But you said the turkey was okay. Well, they said it was. Yeah, it didn't sound okay. That ended abrupt. Hmm. Huh. They always cut out the worst part. Yeah, but yeah. I hope that turkey's okay. If not, it's probably cooked that was a to serious, the right temperature. That was a serious <laughs> drone. Did you hear that? Yeah. That's the coolest drone I've it's ever not seen. Not how I drones mean. sound. No. Yeah. Well, that's how that one did. Well. Did you see how it was flying? What do you mean? It was just sort of floating in the air like a drone. Yeah. Is that how it was flying for you? No, did you hear how it started up? Like, I thought a cyborg was going to come off. Well, it was the lawnmower engine they had attached. Amazing. I feel bad for the turkey. He's okay. But I am dying for a sandwich right now. <laughs> I don't know what's in me right now, but I have a hankering for some turkey dinner. Any other headlines we need to pay attention to? Something something to look forward to in the fall. Right now, the uh, Television Critics Association are having conventions in Los Angeles. These All guys are so critical. The TV networks come in yeah. and present their new shows for the fall. Everyone's critical, just yapping. VH1 showed up, and uh, according to Variety, they're going to have a show called Martha and Snoop's Dinner Party. Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg, <laughs> the rapper, are going to have a dinner party show. Oh, wow. It'll debut this fall. It'll feature the domestic goddess, as it says, and the rapper. Yeah. Who have appeared on TV before. They were on one of these other celebrity shows together, hosting dinner parties with celebrity guests. So so I th- I'm taking it that Snoop's going to bring in a certain group of people that will, like, break all of the etiquette rules. Possibly. And Martha will try to correct that. And you'll put those two groups of people who don't normally associate together and see what happens. It sounds like it has the same potential as, like, Bachelor in Paradise or whatever that show is. Possibly. It says the parties, uh, VH1 explains it as parties as evenings of cooking, conversation, and fun, where nothing is off limits. Oh, wow. My And uh, Snoop Dogg says, my homegirl Martha and I have a special bond that goes way back. We're going to be cooking, having a good time with our exclusive friends. Can't wait to see uh, what? Can't wait for you to see how we roll this together. Isn't that like having Donald and Hillary together? I don't know. It's, it's going to get ugly. But could, Snoop's going to make it really fun. That's up for the fall if you're interested. If I was going to wager money, which I don't, uh, if I were going to wager money, I will say Martha Stewart will probably have a nervous breakdown by about the fourth show. Could. Snoop will laugh his grill off. Or she just enjoys it and they cook quiche. Real men don't eat quiche. I don't know. It's a Martha Stewart dinner party. Okay. Uh, uh, companies put out the uh, top 10 states with the worst drivers. Now, d- doesn't every state, don't you, doesn't everybody in every state think their drivers are bad? Yes. Okay. Which is why they did this because they want to find out yeah. who actually has the worst drivers. Now, the way they did it was uh, they said, let's see here, they uh, looked at uh, factors including things such as DUI arrests, deaths per 1,000 drivers, oh, wow. the number of uninsured drivers, okay. uh, and Google searches about speeding tickets. Okay. They figured that would get you a good number. What do you think the worst driving state in the U.S. is? Well, I would assume it would be the biggest states, but I'm, I, here's what I'm going to have to go with. Okay. I always go with Florida. Mm-hmm. Because they are always, 
always in our news. When something bad happens, something a little odd, it's usually Florida. Is it Florida? It's Florida. Oh. They're number one. Followed by Mississippi, Oklahoma, yes. New Jersey, and Delaware. Mississippi, Oklahoma, New, New Jersey, Jersey, Delaware. Delaware. Yep. Interesting. See, Delaware is a tiny little state. You'd think they get the driving down. You'd think. Nothing ever happens in Delaware. That is surprising. That is interesting. Delaware made a list. They are one of the places that people go hide money. Delaware. And just so where you live? Yeah. Didn't even make the top 25. Sweet. So, yeah, they, they drive bad, but... we I, And I thought we were the worst. We're apparently okay. I mean, I drive fantastic, don't get me wrong. It's the people around me. It's everyone else's fault. Yeah, if it's everyone else you. would just drive normal, it'd be great. Well, part of it, I, I drove home one day, and you were in front of me. I saw you. I passed you. And you were... The reason you just drive really fast. I do. You just, I've tried to stay up with you. I'm like, I'm going to get a ticket here. I think what it is, I realize, is you drive really slow. No, I drive about the speed limit. What? Yeah. Because driving drive, faster gets you there like two minutes faster. Yeah, but doesn't matter. Here's the difference between my drive and your drive. Hmm. I never know if I'm going to be pulled over, and I, you know you won't be. So well, who's having more fun now? So you have that risk. Yes. Hmm. It helps my heart. To what, race? Because you're yes. going to get pulled over? I usually um, just set my little cruise control. To what, 90? By the way, I got <sighs> pegged by a bird, not to be graphic. Here we go. That must have just had Thanksgiving dinner. Because I... Why have, are you sharing this? I, I'm telling you why. I have... Okay. My neck hurts. Because I have to adjust <laughs> my head <laughs> to see around this spot. Just clean your windshield. It's a great answer. Mm-hmm. But when I go to my car at 5 in the morning or whatever time, I, what time do I go to my car? I'm not going to clean my car that early. Just grab a shovel and scoop it off and move <laughs> <Exactly>. on. <laughs> if you have to adjust your neck more than four inches to get around something on your windshield, mm, you are a bad driver. You are causing problems for everyone else. Ah, folks. Sorry to bring you up to date on that. We will take a break talking when we come back about what's happening inside men and women's brains when we work together. Interesting research out of Stanford. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Think about your morning routine. It probably begins with working with your spouse to wrestle kids into their clothes or rushing to work to get a project finished with your coworker. From the moment we wake up, we are required to cooperate with others. But when working with your spouse or someone of the opposite gender, sometimes we wonder what, why they do the things they do. It's like they're completely thinking in a different way. And that might be exactly what's going on. Maybe this is because men and women's brains work differently. We'll see. Dr. Joseph Baker joins us. He's a cognitive psychologist at Stanford University, and he's here to discuss his research on how men and women use different tactics to reach a common goal and what exactly is going on in our brains as we work together. Dr. Joseph Baker, thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Townsend, thank you for having me. Great to have you. Talk about this research. I... I I grew up four women. My mom, three sisters raised me in the house, and 
I always sense that tactics were a big part of some of our differences. Tell me what you're finding out. Sure, sure. So uh, what we set out to do um, was, was just that, to identify uh, what's happening in the brain, what might be different in the brain of, uh, between males and females as pairs of these individuals interact together. Hmm. So to do that, we used a, uh, a neuroimaging technique called near-infrared spectroscopy. That's just a fancy way wow. to say we used, yeah, I'll call that NEARS from now on. It's, it's <laughs> okay. actually just a, a fancy way of saying we use light projected into the brain to measure changes in the, in the uh, um, brain activity. Cool. So this, this is nice because we can do fairly easily things like uh, what's called hyperscanning. And that's just a fancy way of, of saying we're going to measure two brains at the same time. So we use NEARS. We brought in uh, pairs of, of participants either male-male pairs, male-female pairs, or female-female pairs. And we had them do a very basic computer-based cooperation task. So the task was simple. Imagine yourself coming into the lab, sitting down on one side of a table. On the opposite side of the table is, is your, your partner who you've never met. You're both sitting in front of a computer screen and keyboard. The task is simple. Um, what you're looking at on the screen is a hollow gray circle that turns green at some unexpected time. Hmm. Um, when it turns green, you're going to press a button on your keyboard. Now, the name of the game is to try to match your button press time with your partner. Okay? So the way you do this isn't by verbally talking about it, but instead you get a little bit of feedback after each trial. A little plus if you were faster than me, a little minus if, if I was slower. Huh. Um, so oh, successively over trials, we're going to try our best to match our button presses so this is our, our proxy of cooperation, okay? Um, so whenever you do this, a couple really interesting things emerge. First, uh, completely unexpectedly, we see that um, groups that contain at least one male, so these are male-male or male-female pairs, they tended to perform better on our task huh. than on our task than female-female uh, pairs. That wow. was unexpected. Why, why is that? Unexpected. I guess, That's, what, do you, no, what did you find? question. I'm sorry? Did you find out why? Well, it's a great question. Um, it is certainly limited to our task. One thing that we, we don't want to yeah. uh, your listeners to come off thinking is that we're saying that males are better cooperators than females. <laughs> That's certainly not the case. No. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting. They, um, I, I don't necessarily have a good answer for you in terms of why male-male and male-female huh. pairs outperformed female-females. But that, nevertheless, that's what we found. Okay. But in the brain, uh, we see some very interesting things emerge. First, uh, what we are interested in, in targeting was the area of the brain that underlies or under, uh, that sort of helps process social cognition. So these are regions including the right prefrontal cortex and the right temporal cortex. These are basically right in the, in the forehead of the brain and over by the right ear. Now we know a bit about what these areas do from previous studies. So we, we targeted those regions. So what we found was that when male-male pairs do our cooperation task, we see regions of their brains become synchronized or correlated. We call this coherence. Well, that emerged in the right prefrontal region of male-male brains, but in female-female brains, that coherence emerged over by the right ear in the right temporal region. Hmm. So this is interesting for a number of reasons. First, the areas that these, the areas of social cognition that these two distinct regions 
um, sort of subserve differ a bit. Um, so this gives us a little hint into the sort of inherent cognitive strategies that male-male pairs may be engaging and female-female pairs may be engaging. So if you tie that back to our behavioral evidence, that may suggest that this strategy, this difference in strategies, may uh, affect behavioral performance on our, on our task. Yeah. But inter interestingly, regardless, male-male or female-female, the higher the coherence, the better the performance. So if you can engage, effectively engage in this coherence between two brains, that tended to lead to better cooperation performance. Interesting. Yeah. That's a, so if, um, if, so the men in their brain, when they're doing the task, they go to the right prefrontal cortex, the women go more to the right temporal cortex cortex. And yes. what are the, what are the, what, what are the purposes of the two differences? What, what are the differences between the two? Do, do you know why they're choosing? Is it just how they're orienting to the problem? You know, it's a it's a, another great question. So we, we do know a little bit about what these regions are sort of responsible for. Um, it's you should note that the all the work in social cognition is typically done on a single brain, um, right. typically in an MRI, where they're at, they're involved or they're sort of um, trying to uh, replicate some social interaction. Whereas we're at, we are actually looking at two real brains in real time, so it's a little different there. But we know that the frontal region is involved in, in um, person perception and mentalization. So if you happen to be passively viewing two people doing a, uh, um, a decision-making game or involved in cooperation, we see this region of the brain light up. Hmm. Whereas over in the temporal region, that seems to be more involved in action observation, uh, temporal prediction of, of human behavior, or uh, the recognition of human actions. So you see how they're both related to social cognition. Yeah but they, they um, sort of are doing a little bit of different things. So that may say that, for example, if female-female pairs were actively trying to um, predict the behavior of their, their partner, which would, is sort of subserved by this region of the brain, maybe that wasn't necessarily a, a, a great strategy for our task. Mm -hmm. Certainly not to say that there are many, many other cooperation right. tasks, of course, um, and many instances where behaviorally uh, the, the results flip-flop or there's no difference at all. Um, but it, at least it, it gives us a sort of a jumping-off point to start investigating these questions. Yeah. Well, I mean, even, too, because it's, yours was also a study about, like, synchronization or timing. I mean, yes. the whole time you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, man, that's just years of millennia of, of, of um, hunting together. Understanding how to create a timing cue together. I don't know. It's it's so fascinating what you're learning. Um, where where do we go with this? Well, there's. I, I I mean, first and foremost, just like you said, we have a very stripped down, uh, sterile sort of sterilized version of a cooperation task. Right. So, looking out at the the rich tapestry of of different uh, cooperative social interactions that are out there and possible. It's going to be very important to, to start addressing those and start uh, replicating and extending this work out to more and more realistic environments, um, and which NEARS is a wonderful platform for, and that's actively happening now. Um, there are also a lot of, of areas 
of application clinically. So for example, uh, our lab at Stanford Psychiatry, we do a lot of work with, with patient populations who have uh, deficits or trouble in social cognition. Hmm. So you can start to uh, maybe think of interbrain coherence as a metric that may be usable to perhaps gauge one's level of social cognitive aptitude, or even um, there are some, some fantastic techniques out there that are uh, what's called real-time neural feedback. So this is in real-time feeding back um, information about one's own brain activity. So I can imagine a situation where uh, in, a, in a clinical setting, you may observe the coherence that may emerge within a, a pair and feed that information back to whether, whether it be, I don't know, the therapist or uh -huh. the, the patients themselves, ultimately trying to facilitate this coherence. Because one thing that we can take away from this study is that, and that other studies have shown as well, is that more coherence typically means better behavioral performance. And if we could, if we could help them get to coherence, even if they're coming at diff from different sides of their uh pre their their cortex their prefrontal cortex they you're you're saying we could probably over time guide them better teach them better how to create coherence that's that's the idea or or it may be an effective um sort of supplement on top of mm. other forms of therapy yeah uh the 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 value added i think is very rich in terms of um what we can um what we can get from you know outside of just behaviorally observing a um a social interaction, this gives us a very rich source of information that we may be able to use. Yeah. You know what, Dan, let's take a break um, and we'll come back. I'd love to to just pick your brain, no pun intended. Uh, I mean, and I mean, sorry, Joseph, and come back and, and, and pick your brain. I really want to, because it's so easy to everybody to just kind of think, oh, yeah, see, we, women can't do this and men can't do this. It's just so much, it sounds like, that we're coming at it from such a different angle and we, we need to understand and maybe leverage some of these differences and find ways to bridge them as well. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion with Dr. Joseph Baker right out of Stanford University and his, uh, his research on uh, how we can create more coherence between two people in cooperation. Stick with us. We'll be back. the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Joseph Baker. He is a cognitive psychologist at Stanford University and the lead author of the paper Sex Differences in Neural and Behavioral Signatures of Cooperation Revealed by Nears Hyperscanning. Man, Dr. Baker, that was a, that was a mouthful. <laughs> it sounds much more glorious than it really is. It totally does. Great to have you back, though. Give Thank, us you. A, Thank you. Give us a little... Um, Okay, as a, as a you know, uh, how do I put this? As a cognitive psychologist, what really is the difference, if any, and what percentage between the male brain and the female brain? Oh wow, um, that's that's a very tough question yeah. uh, to address. Um, so, I think one thing that plenty of research has shown that there certainly are. Um, differences, their sexual dimorphisms are what they're commonly referred to as in, in terms of, you know, brain size, brain um, connectivity, 
and our research shows uh, brain function, uh, and other research has shown that as well. So, I mean, it's 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 clear that there are differences in the brain uh, between males and females. Um, how you would quantify that difference, I think there are many ways to quantify that difference, and, and I'm not sure it's as cut and dry yeah. as you might want it to be, no. unfortunately. But I guess what I want to get at is... Um in the end it's it's just a difference and it's not necessarily like you like this example of your study some perform differently in this one study than in another than than others did but in a, the next study that comes around it will be it could be reversed just as easily there's there's inherent strengths in both sides absolutely and when when you talk about um social cognition um it's it's unique. You know, humans are definitely social animals, and, and our evolutionary history has uh, a, a very large impact on, on how we've developed socially. Um, there's, and you hit, it, I think, the nail on the head earlier whenever you mentioned, uh, in, in relation to our study in particular, you said uh, you know, males have this evolutionary history that is involved in warfare and, and yeah. stuff like that, and they may be, well, that's one thing that we pointed to in our paper. There's the male warrior hypothesis. There's plenty of... of of evolutionary hypotheses to suggest why, um, based on our evolutionary history, why social cognition may differ between males and females. Uh, it should be known that there's a group out of China that used our same task uh, in a hyperscanning paradigm and found that um, the only coherence that, they, that emerged was between male-female pairs. Hmm. Mixed-sex diets. We, had, we didn't see any coherence in, in male-female pairs. Um, so that may wow. suggest that even culturally, yeah, uh, that may affect uh, brain function that subserves social cognition. Um, so it's it's very very fascinating, um, but it's it's certainly not um, absurd to think that that males and females inherently uh, differ in their social cognitive processes. But one kind of universal learning is as coherence goes up, or the ability for the two to um, in- engage and, and, you know, connect and time better and be at the same pace and rate and understand each other, the results get better and better and better. That is the case, yes. So I guess we should all be shooting for coherence. <laughs> we should. We, however <laughs> it comes about, that's right. We should all be shooting for coherence. Okay, and just while we're on the brain, do you have any advice for Trump? <laughs> Oy, hey. um, no, no I, okay. I don't. I, I'll, I'll go ahead and stay out of that one. That's man. good. I was... But I would like to say I, yeah. I, uh, it was a pleasure seeing Provo, Utah pop up on my phone whenever I called. I'm, my wife and I um, did our Ph.D. work up up north of you in did Logan. You, did you go Utah up to State. Utah State? That's right. Yeah, oh, so. well, we miss you. You might need to come back. <laughs> well, no, you're at Stanford. You're loving it. Yeah, so it's it's great. Yeah, I, great. I definitely enjoy it here. But awesome. It was great being in Utah. You too, uh, Joseph. Thanks for your insight. We'll, we'll have you back. Keep putting out research. We'll keep calling you. Will do. Thank you very much. You bet. Dr. Joseph Baker out of Stanford University. Cool stuff. You got to love a cognitive psychologist, for heaven's sakes, helping us all understand what's going on underneath the hood. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Okay, so uh, so much to talk about. First of all, the hot dog ice cream idea, <laughs> totally disgusting. I'd do it if it was uh, J-Dog's with some J-Dog sauce. Oh, yeah. We'll see. J-Dog sauce would be good. 
But uh, some other uh, – while they're at making – if they're going to keep making gross, disgusting, infused ice creams, they you don't want to miss the salmon and capers. Can we get it without the capers? No, you got to have capers because oh, it won't be deal. disgusting enough. Also, liver and onions. And if you're a vegetarian, it's not like they can't throw together a little lima bean kale okra combo. Who wants this in their ice cream? It's not it's not how you're supposed to serve ice cream. Can't we all just have better ice cream? Hey, do you happen to have I just want to go back to that video. I'm so unsettled about the video. We were talking about a drone that is a drone that also fires a gun or fires a flamethrower and it was chasing a turkey. Here it is. Just watch this. Oh. Oh boy. No, it's the same video. Turkey's in a better The turkey's in a better place <laughs> in that man's stomach. That is a drone, man. That's going to get that guy in jail. We always like to bring you video. We're one of the only radio shows still doing video. Uh, as, a, as, we, as you know, we like to end the show on a hero story. And our hero, check out the story. Someone called Rome police last week after hearing crying and yelling coming from an apartment. But when officers arrived, they found no crime taking place, just an elderly couple lonely and upset by the news that they were watching on TV, the Telegraph reports. The couple said no one had had visited them in months, and they were saddened by the news stories about war and crime, the Independent reports. So the officers cooked a pasta dinner for Joel, 84, and her husband, Michelle, 94, and spent some time with them. The department shared a picture of the dinner in a Facebook post that's gone viral now. It's not only it's not always an easy life, especially when the city empties and the neighbors are are away on vacation. The post reads, Joel and Michelle are not victims of scams, as often happens to the elderly, and no burglar came in the house. There was one, uh, you know, there's just two officers come in, and they decided to help make the day of this wonderful couple. And again, as we wrap up the show, that's really why we're here, is to help support each other. You don't need to, you know, do something fantastic to be a hero of the day. All you have to do is just pay attention to those in need. Listen up. Look to the the hearts of others and see if you can't lend a hand. Sometimes it's just a conversation people need, somebody to talk to so they don't always just have to listen to the stories on the news. Every one of us can be a hero. That's why we bring you this show. We'll be back again tomorrow bringing you more ideas, more information, some of the latest, greatest research, all in an effort to help you see the good in the world and help you understand that you are part of that good. Do not give up. Let's start serving people a little bit more. Let's lift the rest of the world around us. Until tomorrow, folks, take care of each other. Make it a great one, and we will talk again tomorrow.